when I look into the faces of people everywhere. Help me see lost souls in danger and headed to despair. Help me see the flame approaching around their fleeting days. Those who die without the Savior are lost to hellfire's blaze. Help me win the lost and see them in their need. Help me win the lost. Salvation's cause to plead. Help me win the lost. Oh, Spirit, please empower. Help me win the lost. Oh, use me now this hour. As I gaze into the future and see the lost man's doom, help me always to remember there is an empty tomb, an empty tomb. Jesus died for every sinner. He has won the victory. Jesus lives. He is the Savior. Salvation's offered free. Help me win the lost and see them in their need. Help me win the lost. Salvation's cause to plead. Help me win the lost. Oh, Spirit, please empower. Help me win the lost. Oh, use me now this hour. This morning I'd like for us to look together at a passage of Scripture that has long shaped the direction of my ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the center of that passage, verse 2, is the passage that has really focused and, and kind of uh, shaped the ministry that God has given to me. This morning I'd like to make a parallel between the work that the special operators in the U.S. military do and what God has called to do as his servants. Today I'd like to accurately analyze our enemy, briefly examine the powerful weapons that God gives us to use against him, 
and then review our strategic objectives. What, how are we supposed to actually accomplish the work that God wants us to accomplish? I'd like to start by reading a um, illustration that I believe is going to help us to be able and uh, and to kind of set a framework. The world's most reliable troop carrier, the SS United States, was built in 1952 by the U.S. Navy at the cost of 80. The ship could outrun any other ship, could carry 15,000 troops, travel nonstop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. The only catch is she was never used in all of her capacity by the U.S. Navy to carry troops. Instead, the SS United States became a luxury liner for presidents, heads of states, other celebrities. she could house just under 2,000 passengers. Those passengers could enjoy the luxuries of 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Instead of a vessel used for battle during wartime, the SS United States became the means of indulgence for wealthy patrons who desired to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. David Platt in his bestseller Radical has said, when I think of the history of the SS United States, I wonder if she has something to teach us about the history of the church. The church, like the SS United States, has been designed for battle. The purpose of the church is to mobilize a people to accomplish a mission. Yet we seem to have turned the church as a troop carrier into the church as a luxury liner. We seem to have organized ourselves not to engage in the battle for people around the world, indulge ourselves in the peaceful comforts of this world. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, before God gives us his call to service, he promises us and requires of us, thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God never calls us to do something he does not equip us to do. And the fact is, my friend, that you and I, have been called to service by God, and God gives us his grace to be able to accomplish the work that he's called us to do. Grace is not just something I get that gets me to heaven. Grace is the very breath that the Christian breathes. And you and I live our life by the grace of God, and the work that he calls us to do, he gives us grace to do. Now, I would recognize that the work that God calls us to do in rescuing souls for the kingdom of God today is harder than it used to be. I I recognize that, but I believe that where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. I love the picture that Jim Berg gives that it doesn't matter how big your problems are, that God just brings his dump truck of grace and pours it out on us, no matter the need, his grace is more than enough. 
we see the mission that God calls every single one of us to accomplish. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be teach others also. God does not want you to learn the Bible just so you can know it. He wants you to learn the Bible so that you can teach it to others. But he doesn't want you just to teach it to others so that they can be saved. He wants you to teach it others so that they can be saved and matured in the Lord Jesus and to impact and see others saved. Our ministry by nature is circular. We see people saved, we see them discipled, and then we see them trained so that they might lead others to Christ. And then here is the special ops portion of the passage. Verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that wars entangles himself in the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. God says that you and I have been enlisted into the army of God. And God says that good soldiers don't live entangled in the affairs of this world. And yet I find that most of us are very entangled in the affairs of this world. What makes a special operator special? is the training they endure. I've met a lot of special operators, and they come in all shapes and sizes. The one thing that they all have in common is that when they passed out the quit genes, the special operators didn't get any. They, they are all at the beginning of their training to go to a very innocuous sounding class. They call it a selection course. And in the selection course, the, the, uh, those who are training uh, the special operators push them past the normal endurance of a human being. And they do that on they're trying to winnow out those who have the quit gene and those who do not. And those who do not remain and stay trained to be special operators. I have a, a friend. He's actually a uh, FBF chaplain. His name is Mike Stroman. And by the way, I don't know if you knew this, uh, Brother Greg, but we have three FBF chaplains who have trained to become rangers. Uh, very, very unusual. Not very many chaplains who are rangers, a form of special operations, and yet the FBF uh, has three of them that have trained and, and successfully become special operators. Mike Shellman graduated from ranger school at the age of 45, he was two weeks away from his 46th birthday. That's why very many rangers become, uh, 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 or excuse me, very many chaplains become special operators. Uh, they're all older than the regular enlisted guys. And the regular enlisted guy graduated from ranger school somewhere between the ages of 19 to 21. He was literally twice their age and graduated second in his class. He's a tough dude. So he told me, he said, Jeff, you know that when your trainers are, are putting you through uh, your paces, that they're not trying to kill you. But sometimes it seems like they are. Look over in verse 24 of this same passage. 
It says here, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. I'm skipping an awful lot of passage. And in this passage, it's not the requirements for the pastor. This is actually the requirements for a vessel fit for the master's use. And so this fit vessel has these requirements that he be gentle, not striving, patient. Those requirements come into life through the difficulties of life. Sometimes we look at the difficult places God puts us in and we think to ourselves, God, are you trying to kill me? But the fact is, he knows what battlefields we'll be laboring on, and he is preparing us for those battlefields. And then here is the uh, job that God calls us to do as God's special operators. God calls us to go behind enemy lines, to find men and women who are held captive by the enemy and then set them free. Listen to these verses in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. If peradventure God would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. I'm a picture person. I tend to think in pictures. So can I give you the picture that I believe God is painting for us here? Can you imagine someone held captive by the enemy with chains, tie them directly to hell, and are pulling them down to hell. In fact, the only thing that has to happen for them to be able to be in hell is to quit breathing. Those chains, by the way, are their own sins. Every single one of life were held by those chains. And it was the keys of the gospel that came and set us free. And now that God has handed to us those keys of the gospel, he is expecting us, calling us, asking us, would you go work behind enemy lines, find those held captive, and set them free with the message of the gospel? Every special operations group has a creed. Probably the most famous is the Ranger Creed. I won't quote it to you, but I want to propose a creed for us today. If you're going to become one of God's special operators, this is a creed that I propose for you. I resolve to direct every conversation I possibly can to the theme of themes. Learn of that soul's need, and if possible, meet it. We'll come back to that creed at the end of our message It would be wrong for me to recruit you to be a special operator for God without warning you about the enemy and his powers. And so just for a few moments, I would like for us to investigate the enemy in this battle that you and I are facing. The Bible tells us that our enemy is full of hatred. He has a vicious nature. Listen to this passage. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will be like the Most High. You see, our enemy has declared war on God. He hates God, and he hates God's image bearers, you and me. He is ruthless. He has no mercy. The thief comes not but to steal and to kill and destroy. And he is actively hunting those he hates. 
be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Not only does he hate God and hates those of us who represent God, he uses weapons against us. I believe one of the most effective weapons Satan uses against us is the weapon of fear. Listen to this passage. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion. They tell me it's not the roaring lion that strikes down the prey. It's the roaring lion that paralyzes the prey with fear as the silent lioness comes and knocks down the prey. You probably remember the story of Pilgrim's Progress in which Pilgrim was arriving toward the palace beautiful late in the evening. There was a wood outside of the palace, and as he began to enter the darkness of that wood, someone came running out, and they said, you can't go that way. There are lions in the way. And, and he said, I, I, the palace is that direction. That's where I have to go. He walked into that wood, and soon he began to hear the roaring of the lions. And he was about to turn and flee when someone opened the door in the palace, and a crack of light fell to where Christian stood. And they said to him, this is the way. Walk ye in it. And Christian said, I, I, I can't. There are lions in the way. And, and they said, this is the way. Walk ye in it. Christian began to, with fear and bravery, but by the way, fear and bravery have to go together. There's no bravery if there's not an element of fear involved. And Christian began to, with fear and bravery, walk down that path of light. He could literally feel the breath of the lions that they roared at him. And it wasn't until Christian was in the safety of that palace and the light of the palace that he could turn and see that those lions were chained. They had no power against him as long as he stayed on that path of light. And Satan will do everything he can to cause you and me to fear him. But if you and I will walk on the path of light, he has no power against us. He also uses the weapon of subtlety. Listen to this verse, but I fear less by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety or craftiness so your minds would be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. Ann and I do a lot of traveling in third world countries. Uh, the last several years we've spent several months each summer in the Philippines. And... Um, the first couple of times we went in, we were shocked, should I say, by our exposure to demonization. So we still haven't gotten over it, by the way. Uh, but uh, the first summer that we had been exposed to some of these demonizations, I was coming out of the Philippines and we were doing a seminar in Singapore. And I was in Singapore and I was telling our host pastor about some of the uh, things that we had seen and heard. And... Um, Christopher Churn, the pastor there at the church in Singapore, said, oh, yeah. He said, you see that a lot in third world countries, Jeff. 
He said, we used to see a lot more of it here in Singapore, but now that we've become so affluent, we don't see it much anymore. I was very curious about that. I'm thinking, so why now that you're affluent do you not see these demonizations? And so I asked him, and he said, oh, that's easy. He said, the the devil doesn't need to use demonizations to terrorize us and control us with fear anymore. He just uses materialism now. Let me ask you a question. If you heard voices in this room with no bodies attached to them, or worse, voices coming out of bodies that clearly didn't belong to them, do you think that would cause you to want to pray? (laughs) And do we suppose that because he is not demonstrating himself here, that he is not actively pursuing getting us away from the task that God has called us to do? Not only does he use the weapon of subtlety, he uses the weapon of deception. You remember that Satan is called a liar and the father of all lies. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And sometimes, I believe, he speaks in my brain in first person. I can't do this. Who am I? I'm no good. Why should I think I could tell them? And I believe it is nothing more than the accuser of the brethren lying again. He uses the lies of temptations. Let me ask you a question. When you try to catch a mouse, do, do you use cheese or peanut butter? Yeah. I, I, sometimes I hear people say both. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you put cheese or peanut butter or both on that trap? Do you do that because you like mice and you're trying to take care of them? No, it's because you hate mice and you're trying to take care of them, right? I just want you to know that when Satan dangles that temptation in front of you, young people, are you listening? It is not because he loves you. It is not because he's trying to take care of you. It's because he hates you and he's trying to destroy you. Not only do we have an enemy who hates us, who has weapons that he uses against us, but he has a strength far beyond ours. The Bible tells us that Michael the archangel or angel, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And I want you to know something. If Michael the archangel, the strongest angel ever created, doesn't stand toe-to-toe with the devil, neither can you. Listen to this description. We stand against the wiles of the devil. We wrestle not against, or against flesh, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He's stronger than you are, and he's smarter than you are. One more thing we need to know about our enemy before we move on, and that is his defeat. The Bible tells us he was defanged at the cross. I love this verse. Colossians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and having spoiled principalities and powers, those are those code words for demonic power, angelic power, Jesus made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, the cross. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus 
crushed the head of the serpent through the death and resurrection. And you and I have been given power to defeat him. But thanks be unto God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses, I use this as one of my uh, uh, mantras of truth. I have a lot of lies that swarm around in my brain. And I take these mantras of truth and kind of remind myself, here's one that all of us need in our brains. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You see, the Bible tells us that God has already set the time for his banishment, and only one word will fail him. So let's look at the weapons God has given us to be able to use to fight against him. One of the cool things about being a special operator I just spent a week with a friend of mine who is a, uh, a SEAL. He's been 26 years. Uh, he was a chief in charge. In fact, his, the picture that you saw earlier was my friend Herschel. Yeah, he was in charge of a, uh, a whole SEAL team uh, in, in the latter years of his uh, um, working with the SEALs. And um, uh, he was telling me, in fact, what he does now is he advises the American government about the new weapons that are being uh, developed. And uh, he's telling me about some cool things that are out there on the horizon, cool weapons that God gives us to be able to fight against the enemy. Let me, uh, let me share some of them with him. That passage that we just read goes on to say, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the evil one. Having your loins girt about with truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of God of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, finally an offensive weapon, and the word of, which is the word of God, and prayer. All of this, by the way, could be summed up in this one phrase, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. I saw a video some time back. Have, have you ever seen one of those shaky videos? You, you know, you're, you're kind of moving your head like this, trying to get it to hold still. And uh, uh, this video was of a young military personnel standing in front of some Humvees. You begin to find out that his buddies were off in the uh, downtown portion of Baghdad looking for a sniper. This was a young American medic, and he had been asked to remain by the Humvees. And as you're watching this video of, the young, uh, video of the young American medic, you hear a voice in Arabic. And you begin to realize that this video is being taken by our enemy. Someone had supplied a subscript, and it said, quick, shoot him. There was another voice, another subscript, and it said, I'm trying to get a beat on him. And then you heard the report of a rifle. And you watch that young American medic grab his chest and fall over backwards into the Humvees. What happened next you're not prepared for as he jumps up off the ground, runs around behind the Humvees, and begins to point across the street at a blue van. His buddies come rushing back as he yelled, and he jumped in that Humvee, gave pursuit to that blue van. They killed the driver, disabled the van, wounded the assailant, and that young American medic saved the life of the man that tried to kill him because that's what Americans do. You say, well, how, how did he survive that gun blast? He was wearing his body armor. 
When God tells us to put on the armor of Christ, it's not just a slap on the hand. Boys and girls, have your devotions in the morning. You and I are in a battle, and we have to be prepared. Not only does he give us armor to protect us in the battle, but he also gives us the weapon of confidence. If you know anything about special operators, you know that they are a confident lot. I was standing with our friend Mike Shellman at the front of a uh, preacher's meeting. We were standing up front at a, uh, uh, just kind of talking shop, uh, and he and I were visiting. He was wearing his uniform, and, uh, uh, and someone came up as we were talking and interrupted us and uh, uh, shook his hand and said, I'd, I'd like to thank you for putting yourself in harm's way for us. Well, I think it's very important for us to thank those who serve us in that way. And so I was kind of enjoying the moment. And Mike took a step back, broadened his stance, and had, dare I say, a bit of a swagger. Rye grin came up on his face, and he said, I'd rather like to think we put the enemy in harm's way. (laughs) Those special operators, when they take the field, anticipate winning. And I believe that God wants you and me to have that same confidence. Listen to this. The Bible says that Paul is telling the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2 and following, some think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And literally what he's saying is they think that this battle is about our ability against their ability. And he said, look, this is not a fleshly battle. I I have a body that I have to live in, but I am not battling after the power of what you see. And then he goes on, he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. You and I are fighting with the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Word of God. And we have everything it takes to accomplish the mission that God has called us to to accomplish. God expects us to be able to walk with a confidence that breeds boldness. And then the last weapon that I believe God would have us to focus on this morning, something we maybe not think about, it's those keys I mentioned earlier. Listen to this verse. You know the passage. Jesus has just asked Peter and the disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. By the way, that's the most important question anyone will ever ask you. How you answer that question determines where you spend eternity. And Peter had just said, You are God, my Savior. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus said to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father has revealed this unto you. Then he goes on and he says, upon this rock, this truth that you just laid out, I will build my church. Now listen to this. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, that's military terminology. And, And by the way, Who is on the offensive in that passage? It's the church. 
God doesn't expect us to be in defensive modes. He expects us to be in offensive modes. But now listen to this. He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. You will win. And then he goes on and he says, and I give unto thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And whatever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. He said it this way in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus died the death that you deserve. But he didn't stay dead. He defeated death. He defeated hell, and he brought the keys back with him, and he handed them to us in the message of the gospel. Listen to this. I am he that lives and was dead and am alive evermore. What is that? It's the message of the gospel. Death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, my friend, is the key that sets men free. What men need to hear from you is not. You need to do better about your sin. You shouldn't swear. You need to be uh, supporting the candidate that I support. What people need to hear from you is the gospel message. So in this battle that we're fighting, what is it that God actually wants us to accomplish? There are three things that I'd like to mention this morning. Number one, that passage we've been looking at, Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand. Stand therefore. Do you get the idea that he wants us to stand? I believe that God wants you and me to remain steadfast in a world that is changing drastically. He is an unchanging God. And God wants you and me to stop giving ground to the enemy. Have you ever noticed that in, I mean, those of us who are old, Pastor already told you I was, we've recognized in the last 50 years the world has moved drastically to the left. But here's the very sad thing. The church has kind of followed in her path. Those of us who have been around for the last 50 years know that. And we keep our distance from the world, but we've still traveled a long ways from where we used to be. And I believe it's time for us to say this far and no farther. This is our day. This is the day God called us to serve. Young people, I want you to understand this. This is not about you needing to do things the way your parents do. This is about you making decisions that I am going to stand for God and I'm going to remain faithful as God gives me strength. And then secondly, not only is he calling us to remain steadfast, but he calls us to resist the devil. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. So run and flee. Is that what it says? It, the very next verse says, Whom resist steadfast in the faith. I love James chapter 4 where it tells us, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, by the way, don't 
try resisting the devil without first submitting to God. But when you submit to God and walk into the battle and the power of the Holy Spirit, he will flee from you. I believe most of the time the way we resist the devil is just persisting past problems. Do you remember the story of Flight United 93 as it was flying across the skies of Pennsylvania on 9-11? There had been a hijacking on that airplane. Todd Beamer was on that flight. You know, in a normal hijacking, you just sit back. Fewer people get hurt that way. But Todd had been on the phone, and he had heard that our enemies were using our airplanes against us as weapons, and he knew that this was no normal hijacking. Our country was at war. So Todd did not just sit back. He resisted. And I believe he saved the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of people in doing so. And friend, it is not a time for us to sit back in the church and do nothing. This is a time for us to resist, to fight back, literally to take the battle to the enemy. Now, I I know it seems like a hunker down kind of a time. The enemy is getting stronger and stronger, and we just kind of want to hunker down and hold on. Jesus is coming. I'm going to hold the fort. Listen, this is a time for us to be on the march. So how do we resist the devil? And this is the answer. We rescue the perishing. Literally, God wants us to be a part of a resistance movement. Yes, the enemy is taking over the world. I get it. But he wants us to be a part of that underground that continues to resist, continues to rescue. God wants us to know Christ so intimately that we show him effectively to the world around us and in the process of doing so, tell them boldly about Jesus Christ and what he wants to do to save their souls. You probably got it by now. This is a recruiting message. If you could imagine... That picture of Uncle Sam pointing his finger down and saying, I want you. I believe the Holy Spirit this morning is pointing his finger at every single individual in here. And he says, I want you to be one of my special operators. But I want to warn you, if you determine to be one of God's special operators and join in the battle for rescuing souls for Jesus, the enemy's going to do everything he can to thwart you. I read a story recently about a ranger captain named Nate Self. Nate's a Christian. And he writes this story about being called as a quick reaction force in the Battle of Anaconda. His rangers were in the air in two different helicopters as they were flying to the site of where a seal had been lost and their job was to go and find him. The seal had been in a helicopter that was struck, and as the helicopter was struck, it shook that seal loose, and he fell from 10 feet to the ground and was missing. And as these rangers were in flight, they were told where they were going, and as they hovered in the same place where the other helicopter was struck, two rocket-propelled grenades hit their engines, and they had a hard landing. That's a crash. Uh, from 10 feet, and, uh, and they, as they were crashing into the ground the machine gun fire began to penetrate the thin skin of that helicopter, and Nate Self had to crawl over the dead bodies of three of his buddies just to get out of the helicopter. 
He was hunkered down behind some rocks trying to take in the chaos of the moment. And this is his words. He said, we had already lost three of our 12. Several others were wounded. Air support was not possible. I knew if I just lay there and did nothing, we would all die. So I went on the attack. There was a machine gun nest up the hill through open country that was causing most of the problems. Nate took the other four ambulatory rangers and the five of them began to creep across that open field toward that 50 caliber machine gun. They were repelled that particular moment, but they fought back and forth. And at the end of the day, over 200 of the enemy lay dead. We had lost eight of our precious military, and we had taken the hill. See, how in the world did they do that? They did get close air support. Now, here's what I want you to know. God wants you and I to fight. It is a battle, and some people are going to be wounded. But you and I can have confidence that we have, and I'm not trying to play on words, close prayer support. And I believe that just like those special operators can call fire from the sky, you and I can call God to do things that only God can do. But here's what we need to know. You can't call in close air support from your pew. We have to have boots on the ground. You have to have soldiers in the middle of battle. And it's from the middle of the battle that we call in close air support. Let me just give you nine ways the enemy is going to try to thwart you and what we must do. These go very quickly. He tries to snatch away the word. We know this. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 4 that when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their heart. So you and I must give it again. He blinds the minds of the hearers. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. So we must shine brighter. He hinders our progress. A great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, the doors of opportunity swing on the hinges of opposition. When Anna and I first started this ministry almost seven years ago, we were struck by three major frontal attacks. They were personal and they were painful. And we were sitting in our dining room, having resigned from our church, literally feeling alone and just reeling from the attacks that were coming our way. By the way, Satan doesn't like what we do. But greater is he is in you than he is in the world. So anyway, we're sitting at our dining room table talking about what was happening. And I will never forget what that woman said to me. I was sitting there talking about the doors of opportunity swing on the hinges of opposition. And she said, when I hear the screeching hinges of opposition, I'm going to look for the door. You see, God doesn't want us focusing on the opposition. Every door has opponents in it. What God wants us to do is focus on the opportunities. We actually begin to take delight 
in the difficulties that come our way. When I recognize difficulties in the way, I think to myself, huh, the devil must know something good's about to happen because greater is he that is in us. You and I must persevere through those obstacles if we're going to be able to see those opportunities. And then fourthly, he attacks and wounds our warriors. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye that are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. One of the things you know about the special operators, they leave no man behind. This is a time for us to recognize that we're in a battle and we need to be preparing for and protecting each other. He discourages our attempts. In the book of Nehemiah, the men of Judah came to him one day and said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed and there is much rubbish, garbage, so that we are not able to build the wall. I love what Nehemiah did. He took a sword in one hand and a trowel in another hand, and he said, we are going to stay actively engaged in the battle. I don't know about you, but I've discovered there's a lot of garbage in the church. And it gets us discouraged. And sometimes we just feel like, look, this is just not worth it. Let's just quit. And it's time for us to stay actively engaged because it's nothing more than the enemy trying to get us sidetracked. The enemy distracts us with cares. There's a passage in scripture that talks about soils. And there's a particular soil that has a plant growing out of it that is a healthy plant, but it is unproductive, unfruitful, because there are things choking it. Now, I, I just wonder about you as a Christian. How many of us would say, I feel like a very productive Christian when it comes to evangelism and discipleship? And I think most of us would say, no, there's a relative unproductiveness in my life. So if I were you, I'd be very curious as to what the Bible says chokes that productivity. And there are three things that he says here. Number one, he says that the cares of this world enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So let's be honest with each other for a moment. How many of you would be willing to say, I came into the service this morning with at least one care on my heart? Can I see your hands? Okay, that's everybody. So what are we going to do about that? Here's what we do about that. Casting all of your cares on him because he cares for you. He doesn't want us carrying those cares and focusing on them. He wants us to stay focused on the battle at hand. He distracts us with things. Listen to this one. The deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And I know. Every one of us immediately say, oh, that's not me. I'm, I'm not rich. Did you know that if you make $10,000 or more a year, you are among the world's 16% wealthiest people in the world? And if you make $50,000 or more a year, you are among the 1% of the world's wealthiest people. We, the people in this room, are filthy rich, and we don't even know it. Talk about deceitful riches. And I do believe that the American dream is robbing us of much of the fuel that God wants us to be using in the battle for souls. So it's time that you and I refuse the American dream, reduce what we have, and use what we gain to reload the gospel gun and get back into the battle 
And he fills our life with anything that keeps us from the crucial battle of rescuing souls. The last one says, and the lust of other things enter in and chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. And immediately my mind says, what other things? And the answer is, any other thing. We Christians are busy. We have filled our life with lots of things. And God says it is time for us to survey our lives, simplify, and get back at the battle of rescuing souls. The very last thing that I want to mention this morning is that he often, the enemy often whispers delays and unrealistic fears in our ears. And I'd like to close by reading a clipping from Lord Falgren's letters. It's a book written by Randy Alcorn. It's been called The Screwtape Letters of Our Day. If you know anything about screw tape letters, it's a series of letters written by a superior demon to an inferior demon teaching this young demon how to tempt this human. This particular letter is called Postponing Evangelism. I think you'll find it quite insightful. A few vocabulary words are helpful. Number one, the enemy is God because it's being written from Satan's perspective. And the forbidden message is the gospel because the gospel is Satan's most hated and thus attacked message. Since it's what the enemy uses to change men's destination from hell to heaven, obviously you must keep Fletcher from evangelism. But don't bother trying to convince him that it's bad to evangelize. Let him think that it's good, admirable, just as long as he doesn't actually do it. Let Fletcher be a good example until he's blue in the face, as long as he doesn't explain the forbidden message. Don't let him grasp the enemy's notion that evangelism is as simple as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Instead, turn evangelism into something more complex, more obscure, something that will happen one day, but never today. Fill him with the irrational dread of bringing up Jesus and the forbidden message in conversation. If humans analyzed it, they'd be on to us. What else but our efforts could explain why they get so apprehensive about doing for someone what they believe is the biggest favor in the universe, telling them about the enemy's plan to save them from hell and give them heaven. Why would they feel so hesitant about telling people what is clearly in their best interest? Don't let the obvious absurdity settle in, or he may catch on that it's we playing tricks with his tiny mind, fueling this irrational fear. Never let death seem imminent. The one thing they consider most important to talk about eventually is the one thing they can never talk about now. Our perfect timing, our just the right moment boils down to this, never until it's too late. You see, time is on the devil's side. All he has to do is keep us quiet long enough and he wins. You and I must remain urgent. Anna and I have determined never to let the images of 9-11 flee our minds. Do you remember the jumpers? It has been estimated that somewhere between 50 to 200 people 
face the fear of falling that day rather than the fiery inferno inside of those towers. And we know that that is just a small glimpse of the real fires of hell. Hell is real. The battle we're in is intense. The only question is, what are you going to do about it? I have resolved to direct every conversation I possibly can to the theme of themes. Learn of that soul's need and if possible, meet it. Will you join me? Father, I pray that you would take these thoughts, stir our hearts, and Lord, I pray that you would recruit soldiers for your battle right now. We pray these things in your name. Keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. No one looking around for just a moment. Simple invitation. How many of you are willing to say, I want to be one of God's special operators? I want to take that resolve, and I want to turn as many conversations as I possibly can to God, learn of that person's need, and if possible, meet it. Would you pray for me? Just slip that hand up and put it right back down. I see hands all over the room. Thank you for that. Thank you. One last question. I wonder if you're here this morning, you'd be willing to say, Preacher, if I died right now, I'm not 100% sure I'm on my way to heaven, but I want to be sure. Would you pray for me? Just like these others will not come to you, will not embarrass you. I wonder how many of you would be willing to say, preacher, pray for me. I am not sure I'm on my way to heaven, but I want to be sure. Would you slip that hand up right there where you are? Not sure, but I want to be sure. I see that hand. Thank you. I see that one. Thank you. Not sure, but I want to be sure. I see that. Thank you. Anyone else? I'm not sure, but I want to be sure. Please pray for me. Father, we ask you that you would help these that raise the hand, not only to be stirred this moment, but tomorrow morning to put tracks in their pocket, to walk out the door anticipating divine appointments that you would bring in their path. And Lord, would you use us to call people to yourself? Lord, for these that have raised the hand, say, I'm not sure, but I want to be sure. I pray that they would recognize today is a day of salvation, that they can right now in this service come to know you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would save some even now. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Pastor, I'm going to turn the service over to you. Let me say this. If we're afraid to come to this altar this morning, what will we do out there in this world? If God has spoken to your heart and you say, you know what, I want to tell people about Jesus Christ. I don't want to just sit on the fence. I don't want my life just to pass by. I want to engage souls for the kingdom. That's our theme this year. I want you to come during this invitation time. We won't sing the words of the song this morning. You know these words, though. I have decided to follow Jesus. Now, my heart was spoken to. I tell you what. It's easy for us to become complacent where we are, satisfied because we're going to heaven. But there's a world out there that needs Jesus. You want to dedicate your life to telling people about Jesus Christ this morning, I encourage you to come. And those that raise their hands this morning say, you know what, I'm not sure that I'm on my way to heaven. We want you to come and just let us know that. We have a room over here that we'll have open up where we can pray and Make sure that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. It's the greatest knowledge in all the world to know that when I die, the moment after that, I'll be in heaven. Amen to that.
Praise the Lord for that. Let's stand to our feet. Father, you work in these decisions now as we just play this song. We can sing it under our breath, but Lord, don't hinder us from, from coming this morning and coming to this altar. I have decided. You come right now as we, we have the music going. I have decided. I